Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22 through 24. Can everybody hear me all right? Yes. Okay. Uh, this uh, is a promise for God's kingdom. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a center one, a tender one, and I myself will find it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a noble seed. And under it will dwell all kinds of beasts in the shape of branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry off the green tree and make the dry tea tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Here ends today's reading. Thanks, Thank you, Ron. I think we can all agree that Ron's reading has a particular gravitas. We don't often find texts from the book of Ezekiel in the Revised Common Lectionary or any lectionary, to be honest, and that's because it's a weird book. Uh, it's like really very strange. <clears throat> the story of Ezekiel's call goes something like this. The prophet tells us he saw a storm with wind and clouds and fire, and in the storm he saw four living creatures with human appearances, and each creature had four faces, one human, one like a lion, one like an ox, and one like an eagle. They had four wings each, which allowed them to fly with blinding speed as fire and lightning raged around them. <laughs> Nearby were four jeweled wheels, each having four more wheels within, and eyes all over them. Yep. They moved in sync with the living creatures at breakneck speed. <clears throat> and above all this, Ezekiel saw an expanse, a throne, and a likeness with a human appearance. A voice came from the expanse calling Ezekiel to prophesy to Israel and warning him that he would be hated for his call. God then commanded Ezekiel to eat an entire parchment scroll full of words of lament and woe. Yep. Makes sense then that the book's contents would be strange, giving the strange beginning of Ezekiel's prophetic journey. Ezekiel does all kinds of physical acts to show Israel what God's prophecy is. Later in the book, for example, he lies on one side of his body for 390 days, and then on the other side for 40 days, that's not very balanced, representing the years of exile that Israel and Judah would face respectively. 
Later still, and I, this is the one I least understand, he deliberately does not mourn when his beloved wife dies. The book is strange, and that is to say nothing of the content of the prophecies themselves, themselves, which positively vibrate with divine fury. This may make more sense to us, however, when we realize that Ezekiel prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. The prophet was among those deported to Babylon, along with 18-year-old Jehoiachin, who had been king of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar's offensive. The king blinded Jehoiachin, so poked his eyes out and killed his children um, before taking him to exile. Nebuchadnezzar was um, a tyrant to equal any. So after Ezekiel's call opens the book, the judgment of Jerusalem carries on for a brutal 20 chapters. It is followed by another nine chapters on the judgment of the nations, some seven chapters on the coming fall of Jerusalem, and then finally, a balm of eight chapters on restoration. Today's text comes from chapter 17, close to the end of the section on God's judgment of Judah. It is a brief reprieve from the fierceness of judgment, a way to hold on in the midst of profound hopelessness. But of course, we don't read any of the pain in today's lection. Incidentally, one quibble I have with the Revised Common Lectionary is the way it glosses over challenging texts. It glosses over pain and trauma and instead points us to readings that are largely about health and restoration. But how can we have genuine hope when we haven't honestly faced the depth of our pain. Now, it is important that we know the setting for this book. It is important that we know that the exile was a time of acute crisis for the Judahites. For some, it meant that the God of their nation was powerless when compared to this earthly tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar. For others, the exile meant that God had utterly abandoned them. For still others, this was merely a change of geography for folks who were able to maintain false optimism rooted in total denial of the seriousness of their condition. How were the people to move on? How were they to make sense of their new life and the disappearance of their God? How were they to reconcile the loss of, the seeming loss at least, of the Davidic line, of the presence of the Lord in the temple, these are all questions that we should bring to today's reading. As I said earlier, this is a strange and even disturbing book. But as Dr. Brennan Breed writes, it also contains deeply thoughtful ethical and theological reflection, which has much to offer in light of contemporary feelings of displacement, disenchantment, and hopelessness. Ezekiel 17 concerns the miraculous, the survival of the Jewish people after Jerusalem's destruction. Remember that the presence of God dwelled in the temple. Now that the temple had been destroyed, how were the people to connect with the Lord? How were they to be a people of the covenant? Without the temple, the people lacked a geographic center, a leadership structure, and an ordained priesthood. The very guideposts around which life had been arranged were wiped out by a tyrant from the east. There were some, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who were able to help create new theological concepts and practices that allowed for the reformulation of faith and identity, even in the absence of the previous organizational structure. The Judahites came to see themselves 
as a group strong enough to survive and forge a new identity because of the courage and prophetic witness of a few who were willing to hear God for themselves and others. These leaders made space for grief, embodied the process of working through rather than avoiding. This is something we need much more of in our culture too. One of the things I most often hear from people in grief is how they have been failed utterly by the people around them. People who jump immediately to platitudes, to spiritual bypassing, to toxic positivity when grievers try to share their very real pain. People who mean well but have not developed the capacity to sit with sorrow without trying to circumvent it. People who say things like everything happens for a reason or just have faith things will get better. These are not simply unhelpful, they're actively harmful to people in pain. There's a difference between offering a word of hope as a lifeline and seeking to bypass the grief process because we are uncomfortable with it. And that is one of the things we can take from today's text. When we have honestly assessed our heartache, we are more able to hear an honest word of hope. Ezekiel is one who offers an honest assessment of Judah's situation, giving room for the full weight of their sorrow. And then, like a breath, like the wind of the Spirit, God speaks into the turmoil with a soaring promise of salvation, part of which is in today's text. It reads this way. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live and the shadow of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. All the trees in the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, I make high the low tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. What do you hear in those words? I hear of a people who will not have to be consumed with anxious thoughts of self-defense any longer. The place God will provide will be a place of safety and nurture, not just for its own people, but for those who seek shelter within it. The grace of God is generative, life-giving, and life-sustaining. Again, Brennan Brand writes, God's power can be seen in the shocking reversals and upheavals that upend all of our expectations and our assumptions about power and prestige. It is not that the power of God will once again be transferred to Israel in the way of kings and political might, but rather in the very presence of the Lord that will dwell with Judah. Because of this, the whole world will be sustained and blessed. No doubt we can think of myriad ways this text speaks to our contemporary moment. Wars and rumors of wars, our fears for the future, our sometime hopelessness. The call of this text is to realize that no matter how painful life can be, we are called to see those around us who are grieving, and we are called to be with them in that grief. The call is to offer a word of hope only after we have offered a listening presence and a word of empathy, recognizing that things are indeed as bad for that person as they say they are. It is to stand steadfast, to choose belief in the faith of evidence of its senselessness, 
It is to remember that we can cling to real hope, which produces a new heart and a new spirit within us. It is to remember that the God of reversals is the God whom we choose to serve. The promise of God is that the Holy Presence will dwell, abound, even overflow. Out of that overflow, the Lord has spoken, and God will accomplish it. Amen.